Hi, this is Dr. Amy, reminding you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice and is for the informational and educational purposes only. Nothing you hear is a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit-take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. So we go to the pharmacy and I'm dropping Amy off. You run in to pick up supplies as one does. And I'm waiting for you on the side of the road. And suddenly you're very, very rushed and out of breath when you hop in the car. That's right. I dove right in that car. I had to get away from the lady I scared. In the pharmacy? No. I walked out of the pharmacy. I walked right up to our black SUV car. And right as I opened the door, I realized that the handle and the lock were different. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And I opened the door (laughs) and it was some woman sitting in the car who was not you. And she just looked at me and gasped. And I said, oh, you're not my husband. I slammed the door and ran. We think one day that woman's going to be in a, a situation where someone's trying to steal her car. And they're going to go to reach the passenger door as Dr. Amy Lindsay here did. And it's going to be locked because she doesn't want any more creepy doctors trying to get in her car when she's waiting outside the (laughs) pharmacy. And so this person's going to be like, yeah, all right, I'll leave you alone. I'll go do something else. I believe I heard a click of her locking the door when I ran off. We went home with our supplies and she's really excited about this EpiPen. There's some real like glow in her eyes that she's got an EpiPen in case bees attack us. And she's very nervous. I'm not going to be able to use an EpiPen in an emergency. In fact, just the other night. Yeah, let's get this clear. I'm not nervous about an EpiPen. I'm nervous that John can't use an EpiPen if I was attacked by bees. That's right. It's like a big stick with a pin in the end of it. Never put your finger or your thumb over the top. Anytime a doctor tells you not to do something with your finger, listen to that doctor, okay? Only they get to do that with their finger. So the other night, I was laying in bed thinking, you're not going to, John does not know CPR. I'm going to I'm gonna just die right here. It's just going to be a, we're out in the woods, we're up in a cabin. She's like, this is it for me. My, Do you know CPR? I said, yeah, I know the basics. No, you, it's most important thing. What is the most important thing? What did you it's learn? The, it's the compression. You push down on the chest and then yeah. you, um, and you remember what you saw in Pulp Fiction and then you, you know, you, you hit as hard as you can. Don't no, no. It's compressions to the chest to get the blood to the brain. And then you sing happy birthday or is that washing your hands? No, you, you, you do stay alive. Ah, 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 staying alive, staying alive. Right. That's uh, how fast. So birthday is washing your hands, staying alive, CPR. Don't mix those up. Someone could die. So this is who I'm dealing with. So then I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, you know, your wife says, hey, you, you got to figure this thing out. And I'm going to tell you about it. I'm like, okay, yeah, probably. And We're she, back on the EpiPen. Right. And I'm never, I'm never going to remember this. And if the bees come, it's over <laughs> for her. <laughs> She's not going to make it. I mean, I'm going to, there's, you know, 40 bees coming at me. I'm going to run the other way. I'm, you know, um, no, I'd protect you with my life, sweetie. And um, I would cover my body with yours and let them sting me because mostly because you know how the EpiPen works and I don't. So anyway, I'm like, okay, and I'm putting some tea away. I'm reaching up on the top shelf 
and like a green beret, like diving out of the bush, you know, like it's going to take you down. Like this, this is, <laughs> she grabs me around the neck, right? No, it's like I a did headlock. not put you in a headlock. All right. Well, she holds me forcefully and she could beat me up. So she comes around, holds me and boom, this EpiPen goes, I should point out it wasn't a real EpiPen. That'd make the story better, but I'm not going to lie. It was a little primer. It's like a practice thing. So if you want to like attack your mate with an EpiPen, we have one now. And goes right into my leg. She goes, that's how you do it. And I'm like, ah, you know, you're just <laughs> freaking out because she scared me and it hurt. And that now I know if you are in an emergency and you have an EpiPen handy, attack them like you're in a Schwarzenegger movie and just jab it into their leg. No, you have to hold the person. You've got to restrain their arms so they don't flail and knock you off balance or hurt themselves. And you have to hold them because if someone's going into shock, they might collapse. So you got to hold them like a nice big bear hug. You got to get the uh, EpiPen right in the lateral thigh. That's the outside of the thigh. And what song do you sing while you're doing that? Mm, I don't know. That's a good one. We'll have to come back to that. All right. You are listening to The Doctor and the DJ. Hey, hey, hey. It's the doctor and the DJ. Doctor and the DJ. Hey, hey, hey. It's the doctor and the DJ. Doctor and the DJ. I think we made it clear right away in episode one who the doctor is. You probably don't know I'm a DJ, but I am. I could play you some songs right now, but it, <laughs> I'd rather just talk to you right now. So we are here on the uh, Doctor and the DJ podcast, something the two of us have wanted to do for some time. And um, Amy, you're the doctor. That's right. That would be not Mrs. or Ms., but doctor. Something I'm very proud of. I'm 45 years old, and when I was 36, I took a left turn and went back to medical school. I had been working in the music industry for a long time, and um, I had some sort of health battles of my own where I saw many different kinds of doctors, and I came out of it alive, obviously, and I came out of it healthier and happier than ever, and so I went back to school at 36 years old and pregnant with our son, Henry, so if I can do it, anyone can do it. If you can breastfeed your infant child in the car in the parking lot of a community college and then run back in for a physics lab with a bunch of 19-year-old dudes while you're just praying to God that your breasts don't leak breast milk. If I can do that, you can do that. Anyone can do that. But no, I went back to school and, you know, my philosophy is very integrative. I strongly believe that you use the best tools in the toolbox that you have. If you are using pharmaceuticals and medication, that's what you need. If you are using more natural approach and substances, that's what you need. If you're an exercise fanatic, that's what you need. You go for it. And honestly, a lot of this podcast will be talking about music and we'll be talking about mental health. And I have straight up prescribed people to go home and make a mixtape to just help them with their mental health and help them with their joy and everything in between. I'm not going to say that anything's off the table. It really depends on the individual and what they need, but it truly is an and both integrative approach and it's definitely not either or. Well, we're married, we're parents, we're business partners. We own a bar together. Mm -hmm. We like each other. We still have sex. We have lots of sex. 
And I'm also a DJ at a station called KEXP. And I've been a DJ there my entire adult life. Since the days of being an overnight DJ, all the way to doing a morning show once a week, all the way to being on five days a week and then being the director of programming there uh, and being on the air, uh, I built quite a community at KEXP. And for me, this podcast is, I think it's an extension of where I was headed or where I've been headed. So I've been on the air playing music and breaking bands and I've, you know, met or played or seen pretty much every band on earth. And along the way, what I really learned was programming music and being on the air and being myself is what people reacted to. Very honest about my mental health. Uh, I deal with depression. I deal with anxiety quite a bit. Um, I have all my life. Um, and I really opened up on the air when my parents passed. Um, my father died many years ago. It was in a strange relationship, an alcoholic who I hadn't really reconciled with, but I had to go through his death. And that's the first time I got on the air and was really myself and then saw people react to someone just being them and being true, being honest and being vulnerable. And, and again, and being a man and most, you know, men, uh, been raised not to be that way. And my mom who raised me differently, uh, was very close to passed away over a long, uh, time of cancer. And so once that happened and I was on the air talking about that, that's when I connected with people and kind of our life experiences. We have insane lives. Um, and we're hoping some of those lessons we learned along the way and some of those stories along the way, um, will serve you and hopefully make you laugh because they make us laugh clearly. But yeah, I have really kind of come into my own by just being honest about everything. And, and, and this podcast and this idea to talk to others started when I started doing grief shows on the air. Amy started joining me. We were pretty good on the air together and people said we should do a podcast. I agree. And these grief talks turned into something special. The phrase you'll hear a lot on this um, will be, you're not alone. And that's how Amy and I feel. We want to be there to remind people that you are definitely not alone. So what's going on in this episode? So we have a lot of stuff I'm pretty excited about. So we're trying to like, we're trying to kind of put our lives in different segments you know what I mean? Like through this podcast. And I think that's a good thing because there's a, there's a drinking segment coming up later. It's how many days basically we've made it before drinking. Yeah. We call it weekday wine because yes. most people, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I have a few drinks on the weekend, but if you're drinking during the week and you're not an alcoholic or somebody who drinks every day, but if you're us and you're drinking during the week, that usually means, you know, it's a barometer of how the week's going. That's right. Let's just say that. So you are going to be keeping score of how long we make it through a week without drinking. I cannot, and, and for us, the week for that starts on a Sunday. So I'm already looking forward to the Sunday edition of Man, We Didn't Make It a Day. We also have uh, an incredible musician. We're going to interview Josiah Johnson later in this podcast. Uh, he used to be in the Head and the Heart. He was a founding member of Head and the Heart. Uh, we're going to talk to him about him finding his identity. This podcast for us is a lot about identity, doctor, DJ, parent, friend, neighbor, all these things are going to come up. And he talks a bit about finding his identity coming out of, you know, one of the biggest bands in the world being gone for a few years, dealing with his addiction, and coming back and making a hell of a solo release. 
Uh, so we'll hear a little of that as well throughout the podcast. And we also have our next segment, and that is... How fucked was parenting this week? All right, it is now time for our segment, How Fucked Was Parenting This Week? Oh my God. We believe every segment will start that way with Amy giving up with Oh My God. Oh my God. I like to think of myself as, uh, you know, a mediocre father. You know, I, I try to, you know, I, I try, a hard to, tryer. I, I try I'm to a go hard above, tryer yeah, I, I try to get above mediocre, but like you can't level, you can't like figure out what level, like what DEF CON parenting level you were at during a time like this, because I don't know if anyone can parent correctly. Like, and when your kids look back, are they going to be like, God, you remember the pandemic? Do you remember how many uh, empty bottles of wine were there every day? Do you remember that? Like, <laughs> Hey, hey, yeah, yeah. Remember that, you know, your brother, you're talking to your brother and, and, you know, my, my brother and I would talk about that, like how messed up things were when you look back. Right. And so are they going to look back and be like, man, there was, boy, they drank a lot. There was, there, and then what, but will they come to the conclusion like, well, you know, it's a pandemic. Can you imagine, can you imagine being a parent through that? Or are they going to be like, man, they sucked. They, they were so bad at that. Yeah. You know, when I was little and I would come home from school or whatever, and I'd see my dad in the apron making dinner. It was oh, like, oh, uh-oh. Dad in the apron. Dad in the apron making dinner means mom was like, fuck off. I'm out of here. Can't do this anymore. You figure it out. Except she's Mormon. So it would be uh, luck off. Uh, do they have one for the? There's not a f- F-bomb. They got cheese fudge, and crackers. Fudge off. Fudge off. Okay, fudge keep off. Going, keep going. Maybe. Okay, so she would think fudge off. Uh-huh. And uh, where's mom? Well, mom's at grandma and grandpa's. That was like, oh, <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> But, you know, um, it wasn't just about their marriage or their relationship. Um, A lot of it was just, you know, stress in general, but I think stress with the kids, too. I think my mom bore the brunt of the parenting. You know, they were very, you know, religious and traditional family. But when I look back, I I remember that. My dad and the apron. And for our kids, it's going to be the empty wine bottles. Right. But at what age do you think is it? setting in what your parents are and what they're doing like is it at a i'm trying to i I have no memory like how old i was when i started figuring things out with my mom my mom was a single mom raised three kids i don't think i ever really knew what was going on you know what my mom's thing was she smoked secretly but you can't smoke like four cigarettes a night and do it secretly in the house so she'd go into the bathroom turn on the fan throw a little perfume on and you walk in there, and half the time she'd forget to flush the ashes down. She'd smoke into the toilet. Like, what? The fan How comes up? How old were you? That's what I'm trying to think. I was probably Spokane, Washington is where we lived at that age during the smoking years. Uh, I was probably uh, 12, 12 through 20 I, I lived in Spokane, and she did that all those years. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. She died of lung cancer. So... And it didn't work out in the end either. So don't secretly smoke because if she had been more outward with it as a kid, I, I would have said something. But it was such a weird private secret. So like when and when do the kids start looking through our shit? Like when does that happen? Do you think oh. they do you think oh, they yeah. look through it? Because if they look through my um my dresser, it's not gonna it's gonna scar them for life. I don't think they wanna see what's in there. No, they don't wanna they don't ever wanna look at our bedside tables ever. Never wanna look in those drawers ever. <laughs> never ever. That is, never ever. Yeah, if you you're think, listening to this, don't look in there. I'll murder you. Don't do it. Yeah, don't. Yeah. Um, um do you think they've been through them? I don't know. They because they would be they'd be incapable of looking us in the eye uh, at this point. <laughs> there would be there would be no eye contact. <laughs> we would just be like, Hey kids, how you doing? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-mm. No, I think um, there's little things I remember about our oldest son. When he was about eight, I busted him looking into a closet to look for Santa Claus presents. Okay, well, yeah. Right? It's like he was on that, like, hmm, is there a Santa Claus thing? People at school are saying no, and our, my parents are still continuing to lie to me. And he had some idea that there was something in this closet that suddenly was closed all the time. You know, it was a closet that was maybe never, like, shut. <laughs> yeah, but, but what happens when they get into the, the bedside table? They're like, what is this? It looks like a thing uh, that vibrates. I don't really understand what this is. Do they... Do they know what it is at that age? Do they do they turn it on and think it's a lightsaber? Like, what happens? And then... Well, I think our seven-year-old would... Uh, he'd probably think it's a toy. He he'd would probably, probably think... Know. And this then he'd think sweet. it was weird, and he'd come yeah, ask he'd me about it. he come running around with it. I think um, our 16-year-old would never look us in the eye again. Yeah. Well, that's good. So, I think the parenting tip today... I don't know if we're giving parenting tips yet. We haven't really established that in this podcast yet. Um, is if your children cannot look you in the eye anymore, it means they've found something about you that they cannot live with anymore. Check, check, check. Sounds good. Sounds good. I can hear both of you. It's my first podcast. (sighs) And ours too. We're just getting started. All right, we're speaking with Josiah Johnson, who is sitting in our front lawn right now for our first podcast. Josiah, it's so good to see you. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. And you know, it's funny, I was going to introduce you as Josiah Johnson, formerly of the head and the heart. Yeah. And we wanted to talk to you today a bit about identity. We're uh, covering a lot of subjects around identity. And it's funny that I would need to qualify who you are. You have some authority now. Yeah. You are this person because yes. you were in the head and the heart. And it occurs to me as someone introduces bands, how how does that feel for stuff? Do you do you does it bother you? What we were talking about earlier, we we're talking about the like all of the things that make you and the world you don't come from outside of you, they come from inside of you. But all of those structures that get built outside are so helpful. They like amplify your you-ness out into the world you build them because they like make it easy to do your you yeah i we talked off the mic yeah. about this and yeah. i should mention part of this episode is us coming into our own amy and i and figuring out our identities yeah and mine was putting my kex penis away yeah so it gives me like an entry yeah yeah this guy has some sort of authority he's he's kxp john richards but what if he was amazon worker John Richards. Yeah. Like, would I use that identity? Does it have to be an identity that is cool or yeah. different than everybody else's identity? Yeah. So I'll say for Head in the Heart, Josiah, I think when I, so I left that band to get sober just really brief and didn't come back um, the way that I think anyone thought that I would. And then when I was kind of going like, okay, who am I now? Obviously, there's a lot of me in Head in the Heart because I helped start it, but also there's other parts of me. And like, if I do that, there's like the fear that like that's not what people expect and that that will throw people. And I think there's like that fear where you kind of have to like, I had to rebuild a little bit of what people expect from me, like a fuller version of Josiah the human. Did you, is it a bit of a shield? Is it a bit of a protection? Uh, when you can uh, identify yourself around a band's name, like it kind of protects you from maybe uh, being an addict or who you really are. That makes me think about when I was getting sober, I 
was really terrified to have people in meetings who also were trying to get sober go like, oh, I saw the guy from the head and the heart in a meeting. Um, I was reading Mark Lanigan's book, which is a hard read. Mm-hmm. He's an addict who I can't believe he's alive. And he talked yeah. a little bit about being the guy who people identified in rehab. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But then in the same time, he name dropped like 20 or 30, <laughs> maybe not that many, but a lot of people who he saw there. And then now Ma, now identify them a little bit as the sober guy, yeah. the struggling guy. Yeah. So then does that become you when people see you up on stage or see you having, maybe you're having a bad day. Maybe maybe you're, you didn't get a good night of sleep and you're, or you're a little manic. Yeah. Oh. Mm. When Head in the Heart started, I remember... I mean, John early on had a lot of trouble with just wanting to set boundaries, like totally feeling comfortable with people being like expecting more from him than just like the music that he was making. And so he would be just like, I don't want to talk right now. And kind of like didn't use grace when he was like doing that. And, and people were negative about that. And that, and that's, it's weird because that was just him taking care of himself, you know, the best that he knew how at the time. And I kind of, I, I am thankful that I didn't do any of my worst stuff in public. You know, there's like, I remember methamphetamines and like uppers are kind of the stuff that was really awful for me. And I know there's like one of the guys from like those, I don't know, there's a weird name to drop, but like one of those guys from like one of those nineties alt rock bands, like Creed or something like that is like there are tapes of him on the internet high saying weird shit. I'm thankful that I have not put my ass in the air in public in that way. That goes back to what we were saying about what is in you is what you project to the world. But then the world is the sounding board. And so it's the feedback that you're getting. Yeah. And so when your identity is wrapped up in what you're putting out there and what people expect from you, it's suddenly very vulnerable if you end up, you know, being yourself yeah. and being vulnerable and having issues that you're trying to get over yeah. or, you know, making mistakes or, or failing and you have every right to, it's sort of like, you know, I think about those, you know, people magazine, uh, stars, they're just like us. They go grocery shopping yeah. and, um, well, Everyone, every human being makes mistakes. Every human being has something they're struggling with and getting over. And so this becoming a thing, a public thing that people have an expectation to, yeah, it's incredibly difficult to get this sort of forgiveness from fans or public or expectation. Yeah. But yeah, that we're all just people. That, what you just said, Amy, makes me think of that. You reminded me that actually, I don't know whether or not I stand like that, that thank God my whatever isn't in the air is like, actually, if it was like, that's also fine. Right. You know, like my first statement was like a weird fear thing. And I think it's really powerful to just go like, yeah, actually, it would be okay if I had a hard time in public. Um, It might like give some people a weird feeling, but like that doesn't affect like it's much more helpful when I have my own back (laughs) around everything. Right. And, you know, I think, believe it or not, we are all completely vulnerable and human and 
like I said before, making mistakes and failing. I think sometimes it's completely therapeutic to see people we look up to fail. Yeah. And it helps us remember our own humanity. And it's almost like we need celebrities and stars and um, people we look up to to fail as a role model, that it's okay. Yeah. That we can forgive and we can always work on ourselves as individuals and as a society. I like that. When you worry about, you know, what people think and in your own um, putting yourself out there, I know coming out of the sobriety and, and finding your identity, sexuality came in to play as well for you. Yeah. And did it take getting sober or did it like, did it take not, maybe putting something away to care about that? Because that is something I find very fascinating that we care so much about what other people think as a label of who we are and who we're attracted to. And as if we would, it's like a two-party system. We're all going to fit into these (laughs) definitions. You are this and you're nothing else. And how for you with identity and sexuality, what was that journey like for you? Well, the hard thing for me around sexuality was that, I'll say this first, so I identify as bi or queer, and I, I've i never been intimate with a man as like my full embodied self, but I have totally disintegrated and totally feeling shame afterwards. And I carried around a lot of weird weight for that. And it's weird now because I've like claimed that, you know, that I'm bi, and it's still new. Like I have no experience as like my whole self doing it. And so I have that identity, even if I'm not like necessarily acting in it, if that makes any sense. But it's like almost claiming that identity is like claiming territory, like making the world of possibilities for me bigger, even if I don't necessarily go over there all of the time. And that feels really powerful for me. So I'm, I'm still kind of in the middle of that, but it, it's like really helpful to just put it out there and make like the possibilities for myself wide and let go of the shame around whatever. So we often think of our identity as something we do, right? Yeah. But identity is who we are and who we are being, you know, and we're human beings and we often relate as human doings, but it's so powerful to just speak your truth and how you are being. And I get the shame part, you know, I personally, anytime I do something or I'm being a certain way that goes against my upbringing, I was raised in a Mormon family, very religious. And sometimes I call it, I say this to John, I have a shame hangover. I have like this shame hangover and he'll say to me, are you okay with what we just did or what we've been doing or, you know, what, regardless of what it is. Yeah. And I'll say, I just need a minute. I'm having a shame hangover. <laughs> I yeah. just, I, I kind of have to recover from the shame hangover, but I am completely okay with everything. I just like, you know, there's just kind of this uh, pause or like a process, but the process does get faster. I get quicker to being okay and reminding myself I'm in my own truth and it's totally okay, but it's sort of like this creepy you know, how you were brought up or, or whatever. And so, yeah, shame hangover. Yeah. It's like, it's telling yourself that you're safe to do that. There's like some sort of weird, like fear, like, oh no, I've done like, 
when no one's there like no yeah, one's there you're, no you're one's there judging you. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you have this weird physical i at least for me i'll just say for myself i have this weird physical body reaction that then i have to go step outside of and go like oh no you're okay all of this you've decided is great and you believe is great and you're safe but it, your body carries a lot of weird trauma from things that you didn't even choose we have, uh, we're talking to Josiah Johnson. His new album is Every Feeling on a Loop. And um, we want to talk a little bit, too, while we have you here. Um, we like to talk about music as health and music as medicine. And clearly you play music. And I uh, would love to know, Amy, how you how you see music as, as medicine health, as, as a musician yourself and a doctor yourself. Right. Well, music, I mean, I think of it mostly for mental health. But, you know, I strongly believe and I see it all the time as a doctor and just as a human being on this planet that mental health is physical health and physical health is mental health and spiritual health and it's all connected and this isn't some woo woo mm -hmm. magical mystical thing this is like it comes right down to your nervous system and how your hormones work and yeah. <laughs> how how your cardiovascular system responds etc and so for me personally, I'm a musician, I play classical piano and I feel like when I'm playing the piano, it's scratching an itch like in my soul. There's some like healing that's going on, like bits and pieces of my nervous system are sort of aligning and coming together and it's nourishing, it's completely nourishing and I can play for three hours straight and come out of it like I have just given myself the biggest gift I could have given myself and I'm completely calm. I feel good. And what comes out of that is just kind of a general sense of well-being. I relate to that. When you would finish a show or tour, what is the danger in it being quiet then when you've been distracted and happy and Adrenaline rush, and is is that a dangerous time as an addict? Is it a dangerous time as anyone who deals with depression? I know after my show is done, I'm not my best. I, I'm so happy during the show. I'm sharing music. I'm mixing music. I'm being creative. And then it ends, and you're all alone. Yeah. And you feel guilty for feeling bad. Yeah. You. Yeah. There's, like, this momentum. I think of, like, being on a tour or playing a show or probably doing your show, too. You find, like, a rhythm for me being on tour it's kind of the same thing as like the structures outside of ourselves the identity structures that like help make things easy there's like a schedule and that means that my like desire to play music every day will be met and i know what time things are and i have this easy rhythm of joy every day and connection with other people every day and i get home and I, that's taken away and i have to kind of an ex of mine, has, Chelsea Coleman, has a song that goes like, I'm coming down, I'm coming down, I'm coming down. I think there's also on Young Man in America, and Nice Mitchell has track three on that album, is like totally feels like when it all gets taken away. And it's hard to be alone with yourself, for me at least, I'll just say. And, um, and yeah, when I come off of tour, I have to decompress because I've become this really kind of very functional person that gets things done and shows up where I'm supposed to go. And like, as people, I don't think that we're actually like supposed to be functional all the time, but I think that's where decompressing 
the word. I think I like in my thirties, I finally realized like, oh, decompressing means like actually like going from being tightly wound and very like good at what you do to like relaxed and easy. And when I get off tour, sometimes I'm so excited to be a functional person because it feels so good to be useful. And I just want to like keep, I want that feeling to keep going. And like, actually what's best for me is to just breathe and not be functional. And it's really hard to let go. I don't know of something that's good. It's always hard to do. Yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I feel like it. I. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Do yeah. you do you relate to that? I I do. I you know the worst I feel after um, doing this is when we do drives when we raise money. Yeah. Um, because people are supporting the station. Yeah. That I work at and donating their money to keep us going. And I'm getting fed over and over again, like that what I'm doing creatively is right as well. And so, and then I'm being creative, I'm getting feedback. I would assume that's the equivalent of an audience saying, yeah, you are the best as I am, are you guys real? And then you're done. And then you're like, am I, you know, am I? Yeah. Like you're that high, you're that yeah. high up on the, on the, on the pedestal. And I don't think people realize how dangerous it is on the other side of that. Um, you talk about disappointing people. That's part of the issue with worrying about what people think of you because yeah. you believe that. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm terrible. Like you, you should not be cheering for me. That was all a mistake. And you find every last thing wrong afterwards. I would say half the sessions I've done at KEXP when they're done and I'm like, oh, oh man, it was great. You see the band members saying, God, I totally missed the stones. Oh yeah, so did I. And then we didn't do the thing. Should we do that again? And I'm over here like, dude, that was the best thing I've ever heard. That was the best. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. And I can't believe they think that way. Yeah. And I do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that instinct isn't bad either. You know, like that instinct to like, did we do a good job is like trying to take care of you, help you do your best job, like help what you do get out into the world. Like, that's great. And it's maybe just like misdirected and like, it's up to you as like, the parent of your instincts to like say oh i don't need you right now judging brain we'll save that for the next band practice or something <laughs> like that yeah well so you're talking about you know coming down and decompressing from being a functional human and i completely agree i mean i think in this world and maybe in our american culture in a lot of places we're just like these achieving machines and it feels good. It feels good to get uh, shit done and feel functional. But at the end of the day, I agree with you. I don't think we're meant to be going that hard, that fast for that long. And some of the best advice I ever give is stuff your grandmother could give you. Yeah. It's like, you need to sleep like your life depends on it. Yeah. No, really. Like sleep is the answer. <laughs> and, and that's something your phone. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that's something so your grandmother could tell you. And it is the best health advice. Well, if you're looking for a great record, Josiah Johnson's new album, Every Feeling on a Loop is the name of that record. And um, just love the album. And there's so much there that we're talking about right now that... Uh, that you find in the lyrics. Congratulations on the record. Thanks for hanging out in our front lawn. Thank you. While our neighbor is building a, I don't know what he's building, a bunker maybe at this point. What's he building in there? <laughs> That's a pretty good uh, Tom Waits. Yeah. Nice <laughs> Josiah Johnson, thank you so much. Good luck out there. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. There was anger in my heart But I come to you with my love and open arms for myself and for everyone. I'd gotten it all wrong. 
And I, I really like talking to Josiah. He's kind of the best first guest we could have had. And I was thinking about being down and um, in things that have helped me through the years. And, and something I've learned through this uh, pandemic has been we take walks and the outdoors and the sunshine sometimes here in Seattle help. And um, I've really felt a difference getting the fresh air. And this entire time I've been thinking to myself, man, I, I this last winter, I was just getting so much vitamin D. I'm just pouring into me whenever I'm outside. Because even if it's cloudy, it's got to be coming through there. I mean, you can get sunburned through the clouds. So I'm sure that vitamin D, however that works, shoots its lasers into your body when you're outside. That's not true, I have learned recently. Um, tell me about vitamin D and why I'm not getting any through the winter. First of all, vitamin D isn't really a vitamin. Vitamin D is more like a hormone that works at this sort of nuclear cellular level, like it, it can have action on your DNA, actually. Pretty cool. And you get vitamin D through the sun, and you absorb it through your skin and through your eyes, through your retina, and it's synthesized in your liver and your kidneys, and then it has all these different actions in your body. Tons and tons and tons of actions in your body at that sort of nuclear level. I won't go into all the biochemistry of it. I'll spare you all. But it has lots of actions. Super, super important. But here's the thing. The vitamin D absorption is if the sunlight is above 30 degrees, like the UVB rays are above 30 degrees. There's science. There's, there's a lot of <laughs> physics involved in this now. Angles of the sun. Angles of the sun. Yeah. And it so it depends on your... Latitude, right? Okay. So in Seattle, you're not getting vitamin D opportunities from October 23rd to February 17th. And depending on where you live, you can use the Googleies and find out when the angle of the sun is above 30 degrees in your area. Now, depression rates are very high in Seattle. Mm -hmm. I, I recently saw something about Iceland uh, residents take more antidepressants than any other country. Is it just that it's dark up here and cloudy? Same with Iceland. I love Iceland. Shout out. But is it more than that, do you think? Do, do you think it's the actual vitamin D getting into our bodies up here that may have something to do with this? Does it have anything to do with like how we feel with our well, depression? Well, it's, it's, it's multifaceted, right? I know it's not one thing, it's right? Not does, one it, thing. does it impact that? Absolutely. Okay. It absolutely does. And not just the vitamin D part, but even just the light part. You know, vitamin D in your sunlight or not, the light part is huge. And if you think about it, you know, so many animals hibernate in the winter. And then humans, we just keep going. We like set our alarm clocks and we, we still have all this shit we're trying to accomplish at all times. And we live in a very like overachieving, overstressed out society. And all the signs from nature are saying, you know, you should probably like hunker down, hibernate a little, put on a few extra pounds and, and, you know, do a lot more resting. You know, it's not practical depending on, you know, what you do for a living or what your life is like. It's not necessarily practical, but you have all these signs from nature telling you otherwise. And yet we're still like setting the alarm at 5 a.m. and getting up and achieve, 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 do, do, do. You know, it's not. And Mother Nature's like, you know, maybe y'all should just sleep more, put some, uh, you know, stew in the, 
in the crock pot, put on a few pounds, you know, I don't know, knit by the fire. Well, there you, there, <laughs> there's, there's your prescription for the winter. You make know, a fire put, in the cave. Put on a few pounds, find a cave, light a fire, and then make a stew. <laughs> and then that's you listening to nature. All right. Um, next, we drink. All right. We have our weekday wine segment of the podcast now. And uh, we, we debated the title, you and I, on what this would be called. It sounded a little like a little, little milk toast to me. But I, but then you you talked about the concept of this segment, and I'm a big fan of it. Well, you don't want to confuse it with weekend wine, right? Weekend wine. Well, everyone can get behind that. That's that's the milk toast. Weekday wine. There's a story there. So for us, we went through the pandemic, and uh, we're still going through the pandemic. It's not over. You should probably uh, watch the news. But we. We found ourselves drinking a lot of nights in a row, like, and, and it's hard during this pandemic to, you know, measure yourself against other people or the information that's out there that what is too much drinking and what is not, especially during, again, a worldwide pandemic. So we try to be healthy. We, we have our weekends where we, you know, let loose have a couple bottles of wine or we like, you know, you know, eat the things we probably wouldn't eat on a weekday, stay up later than we usually stay up, whatever, get away from the kids. And so we're like, okay. And I think people can agree here. Then you, you say, oh, the weekday, oh, we're going to get it together. I'm going to focus on all my stuff. I'm not going to drink. I'm going to get to bed early. And then it's a race to see how long we can make it. And every once in a while we make it to the following weekend. It's amazing. It's like, we should celebrate with again, a drink, but this (laughs) is a long explanation of Wednesday is the day. So it's Wednesday. Wednesday wine could be the name of this segment. And I guess the question is, what is the thing that triggers going to the bottle? Well, I can tell you. The thing that triggers you and I to go to the bottle is this. We have a very interesting life that usually puts us in bed very early. In fact, we're a little bit past our bedtime right now. And we start to resent it. We start to want to hang out and be real grownups and want to hang out with each other because we put our kids to bed and then we go to bed not long after. And I think we're just desperate to hang out with each other. And so for us, we're kind of in these, um, a very strict routine during the week to make our life work and get enough sleep and be able to do all the things that we can do. And then We'll have a day that just, we, I think it's because we need each other. We just need another adult to talk to. And having a bottle of wine is like an excuse or a reason. Or if we break out the wine, it becomes suddenly a social, interesting conversation. We can relax. Some of our best conversations happen over wine. Some of our best ideas happen over wine. I believe this podcast came about over a bottle of wine during the middle of the week. All of our good ideas actually came out. I don't know if this is a good idea, but all the good ideas came out over the bottle of wine. We opened a bar. Remember, we own a bar. A bar is not necessarily like a place you go seeking out wine. Although with us owning a bar, we made sure the wine's good, right? Um, It just happens to be our drink of choice. And I think that's part of what you're saying. Like it's a comfort thing for us. And for other people, it may be a mixed drink or it may be a beer. Um, but for us, this is like a warm friend. It's a, it's a ritual, right? Like it's, it's a whole absolutely thing. a ritual. It's a whole thing. So when do you, you know, something I, I struggle with, I come from a, a family of alcoholics, the Richards, um, you know, my father was a raging alcoholic. He had a, um, 
uh, it was fairly obvious he was a drunk because he had a mason jar full of vodka in his car at all times, like next to his seat. And just, I, I only knew him sober when, when he was near the end of his life. And so for me, that's like, okay, that's, he's an alcoholic. <laughs> like if you have a register of like a one to 10, he's a 10, this is a 10 alcoholic. And again, and I, and I saw that growing up and I've had plenty of friends and being in the music world, a lot of alcohol abuse. But I guess my question is, when have I crossed that line or have I crossed the line? Right. Well, like anything, there's a spectrum. There's a very big spectrum and it's very individual. Alcoholism is very individual. Not, you know, not everybody's the same. And if you're somebody who is asking yourself if you're an alcoholic every day, or if you're wondering if you have a drinking problem every day, or if you're waking up every morning and thinking about drinking, you should probably investigate that and stay curious. You know, I read something today and I completely agree with it that empathy means curiosity, that if you can be empathetic with yourself and remain curious about, you know, how much you're drinking, I'm, one thing is you're not going to be going down to the dark, dingy basements of uh, some random church with folding chairs with a bunch of strangers if you don't have a problem with alcohol. You're going to put yourself in that situation when you get to the point of, I need help. You know, as a doctor, it's really interesting. You know, people will come in and that's always a question. That's always part of your social history is how much do you drink? How much do you smoke? How, you know, on and on and on and on. And, and I think what is normal for most Americans in our culture is actually scientifically considered heavy drinking. So what someone might think as moderate is considered on sort of that scientific scale of ounces of alcohol is actually considered heavy drinking. And so, you know, there's no, I'm not shaming anyone about this at all, but it's just an interesting fact, you know, what the CDC says, how many drinks and measures of alcohol and how fast, right? The rate of consumption actually really matters. And, you know, if you've ever noticed, if you did four shots in a row, you'd be drunk, right? But if you did four shots over four hours, not so much. So the rate of consumption also, of course, matters. But it's just always interesting to me to see like what's quote normal in our culture versus what's healthy. And they're not always the same. I will say while we're on the subject, it is later. And for me, I I have trouble sleeping at times. I, w- I wake up really early. I've had a lot of anxiety over all the events. I don't know why it's been um, wildfires, uh, pandemics, uh, fascism, pretty much everything. I uh, uh, was up late at night when I was a little kid, you know, worrying about all turned out. It's just a really weird version of it. It's just not, like I thought it was kind of I thought it was going to happen. But man, not like this, not with like that dude in charge and and just how Americans would react to all of this, I think is keeps me up kind of early in the morning. And so when I have drinks, I actually like, you know, I'm not going to say I reach for this and say, this is going to help me sleep. But part of me knows like, yeah, I'm going to knock off, you know, it's going to be easier to just crash tonight if I have one or two glasses of wine. And I worry about that a little bit. Like if I start thinking, oh, yeah, I'll sleep a little bit better. But you're here to tell me because she has told me. Just uh, I'm going to give you a little heads up. I I, I kind of know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I'm not sleeping better when I drink, am oh, I? Oh, hell no. Damn In it. fact, I, I have the opposite. I wanted a different answer this no, time. I have the opposite effect. 
I'm drinking this wine going, damn it, I'm not going to sleep very well tonight. Because here's the thing. You've got a lot of sugar. It's fermented sugar. That's alcohol. The end. You, mm, it's, that's, the, that's the mystery. So <laughs> it's the alcohol and the sugar in your system. And yeah, you'll, you'll pass out and you'll go to sleep easier. But then it completely disrupts your melatonin, your circadian rhythms, and then you've got a bunch of sugar dumped into your blood. So now you have high blood sugar, and all of that stuff is going to wake you up in the middle of the night, let alone you're going to need to pee at some point. Well, I, you know, I'm an, I'm an old man now. I pee through, I'm what, like three times a night? <laughs> like, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think this is going to change that that much. Maybe we should check your prostate. Maybe we should. That's for a different podcast. And we'll do that live uh, on a Doctor and the DJ podcast in the near future. But we, um, I've lost my train of thought. Why? Because you're thinking of me giving you a digital rectal yeah, exam. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but the way you talk about it, it's not sexy. It's, uh, it's not sexy. Those not are not sexy. sexy. No, you're, it's like your wife's a doctor. And I've never had that, like, ooh, sexy doctor. I've had the, I don't really want, I mean, you can stick your finger at my butt, but not for that. That's not, that's a different thing. That's like. Oh, that, it's definitely a different that's thing. That's a different there's, thing. there's church that, and state at our that, house. That's another bottle of Sometimes wine. Sometimes we have to set those boundaries. This is church, John. This is clinical. I need to evaluate you right now. <laughs> I was going to edit all this out, but now I actually want to keep it in here. What I was going to say before I lost my train of thought really quick, it's I can't sleep. Uh, I'm up peeing all night. There's a possibility I'm going to be an alcoholic. It costs money. It's all bad. It's all real bad. So this is why, and you see studies. I just saw something the other day. Is like, it just any drinks make your brain, whatever, uh, Cheerios. You're just like done. So it's all bad. And so because of that, because you see that, because that's pretty much what you're hearing. And you know of people. I know so many people have been alcoholics, right? Or been, they are. Grew up with it. Why, why do this? Oh, I'll tell you. So here's my thing, right? I always ask people what they're getting from something. What is the benefit of that? I ask this to smokers too. What is the benefit of smoking? What is the benefit of drinking? And there's usually a benefit and it usually has to do something with stress, something with taking time for yourself, something that is social. It's something you do with other people. And it's a time in your day when you pause. And so think about that for a second. You pause. You're being social. In a way, it's self-care. Even though it seems to be contradictory, it's self-care because you're taking care of yourself for a minute. You're giving yourself a break. You're giving yourself a break. And you're doing something that is like a treat that you enjoy. It usually has something to do with trying to help yourself de-stress. So all of those things are good. All of those things are benefits. It's just don't abuse that benefit because it crosses over it, it, like a lot of vices, right? That's right. I, I don't want to put shame anywhere. And I think it's completely fine if you want to enjoy a bottle of wine. Now, if you're getting two buck chuck by the case and you're drinking that every single day and you wake up every morning and all you can think about is your two buck chuck, you probably should call somebody, you know, and it's okay there's probably a really good reason why you got to that point. We want to thank our, our, our wine sponsor tonight. Now, what's interesting about this podcast, Amy, is um, they don't actually give us the wine. We pay for it. That seems, that seems wrong, but we're new to the podcast game. 
So, and I work in non-profit radio. Well, if you want to sponsor the uh, weekend wine, <laughs> right. you certainly can. We we will take your wine. We'll it, give you our address. That's right. You let us know. You reach out. Um, we're drinking a little Washington State wine. We're very lucky to live in a state with uh, amazing wineries. And the Vincent is what we're having. And Amy, uh, I picked this out. Uh, I was uh, buying the groceries at the PCC you know, with the mask and everything. And I went to the wine section, which is decimated. Um, and the Vincent was sitting there. It had a fancy label. I really liked it. Well, you know, the top three things that people look for in wine, right? For me, it's price, label, and history. Like if I've had it before. Ah, that's a good one. For most people, it's red or white, you know, or rosé or bubbles, uh, label and price. But yeah, history would be probably coming up close that, that, behind all that stuff. I'm not going to lie to you. I've had the Vincent before. And uh, um, the, it is uh, cellared and bottled by Board Track Racer Cellars in West Richland, Washington. It's a 2018 red wine that we have been enjoying. And we will go enjoy right now and not work on this podcast because we're supposed to be drinking this wine and hanging out and together. And hanging out together. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a new song from our good friend Josiah Johnson. And next week, join us for an interview with legendary Ben Gibbard of Death Cab. For Cutie Amy, I'm very much looking forward to talking to him next time. Me too. We want to be sure to thank our friends at Ruinous Media, Joe, Chris, and Patrick, for helping get this podcast off the ground. And to our friend and our neighbor, Michael Lerner, for our theme song. Additional music by John Atkins, Chris Jury, and Joe Plummer. Now, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. You are our marketing for the doctor and the DJ. So if you know someone who needs more doctor or more DJ in their life, now you know where to send them. And now to our guest, Josiah Johnson. We're going to take you out with one of my favorite songs from his solo release called Nobody Knows. I always thought I'd be a potted plant I'd grow the beauty even with my dirty hands Always thought I'd be a well-kept man And you would take me out to dancing again Always thought I'd be a wilderness I could be a savior in a white linen I could learn to clean up every time I made a mess And you would take me out dancing again
of your bed That you would take me out to dancing again Take me out to dancing again. 